Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Well, I did with my, my wife. It was a good, good time of year for, for us. But in the new year, one of the things that's very common for us to do is to make New Year's resolutions, right? How many of you guys have made New Year's resolutions and actually fulfilled those resolutions? You know, like a very common one is lose weight or exercise or eat healthier or something like that. Usually, most resolutions, are what statisticians tell us, are usually broken by the end of the month. But uh, we make them, nevertheless, on this New Year's. Well, on December 18, 1722, a young man, 19 years old, Jonathan Edwards, he penned some very famous resolutions. Jonathan Edwards is probably one of the greatest pastors our country has ever produced. And at 19, he wrote the following. He said this, Resolved to study the scriptures so steadily, constantly, and frequently, as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. Like, wow, that was definitely 300 years ago. What in the world is he talking about? Uh, basically, Edwards is saying, I really want to understand and know and grow in my knowledge of Scripture. That's what he's saying is resolved. The second one was this. This is his 29th resolution, was resolved never to count that a prayer, nor to let that pass as a prayer, nor that as a petition of a prayer, which is so made that I cannot hope that God will answer it, nor that as a confession, which I cannot hope God will accept. What Edward is saying is, when I pray, I want to make sure that I'm really praying. That I'm praying in, by the will of God, that God can answer my prayer, and that God will answer my confession of sin, and that he will receive that. And so that was, two of his resolutions had to do with reading the Bible, understanding scripture, and prayer. And the last resolution I'll read that he, he wrote uh, is this, his 30th, was resolved to strive every week to be brought higher in religion and to a higher exercise of grace than I was the week before. See, Edwards was thinking, look, each week I want to be growing in the knowledge of the grace of God, that each week I am growing in my Christian faith, in my Christian practice. Now, he did this at 19 years old, and I think his life would show that he did his absolute best to fulfill those resolutions. Well, this morning... I want to call your attention to a particular book of Scripture, which some have called is the most neglected book of the New Testament. It's the book of Jude. Uh, it's, a short cha- it's a short letter. It's, really one, it's only one chapter, but it's worth our attention. And we're just going to look at two verses in the book of Jude. We'll look at verses 20 and 21. Jude writes this, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So Jude, who penned this letter, was a leader of the church of Jerusalem, along with his brother James. Both James and Jude were half-brothers of Jesus. Now, by the way, in the back of my head, I can just see this going on in the household of Mary and Joseph. I see, you know, Mary, Joseph, talking to James and Jude and saying, why can't you guys be more like Jesus? What's your problem? <laughs> anyway, I got two brothers, so I know what that's like. Um, 
We are not entirely sure who Jude wrote this particular letter to, other than Christians. Jude wrote this letter to Christians, and we are told, Jude tells us his purpose in writing this letter. We find that back up in verse 3. He writes this, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I find it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So what's happening, what's going on here is that there's some false teaching that's going on in this particular group of Christians, and Jude is saying, what I want you guys to do is fight, to contend, to work for the faith. I want you to hold fast to the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So in our fighting for our our faith, and in fighting for this faith, we are told that this means to also keep ourselves in the love of God. That's what we read in verse 21 there. It's a present imperative, meaning like this is an ongoing action. Like we are to continually, ongoing, as a lifestyle, keep ourselves in the love of God. So one never really arrives spiritually, but this is a constant thing that we go through in life. We are always in the danger of backsliding. So Jude, in his introduction, he introduces this group of believers. He, he reminds them that they are called, beloved, and kept for Jesus Christ. It's in verse 1. So he writes, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So which is it, Jude? Are we keeping ourselves in the love of God, or are we kept for Jesus? Well, it's, yes. Jesus says this in John ten three. The sheep hear his voice, that's the good shepherd's voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. And later on in John ten twenty seven through 30, writes this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And so we have the Scripture teaching us that on the one hand we are kept by God, we are kept by Jesus and God the Father, but there's also, on the other hand, we are also to keep ourselves in God's love. It's kind of odd, isn't it, that in the same book we are both told that we are kept and then we're told to keep ourselves kept. But the Bible continually, and this is one of those divine paradoxes, it insists that both God is sovereign over everything, that God is sovereign in our salvation, but also man is responsible. So which is it? So is is it both, or, you know, is one more bigger, bigger than the other? Well, I think it's, we need to remember that God uses means. In other words, God uses things, uses people to, to work out his particular ends. And one of the ways that he keeps us is that we keep ourselves. Sounds kind of strange, but I think that's one of the means that God keeps us in our salvation. So the main idea that Jude wants to get across to us this morning is this. We keep ourselves in God's keeping love through the word, prayer, and expectant waiting. In other words, those are God's means of us keeping ourselves in in God's love. The reason we know that this is going on in this particular passage is keep yourself is the main verb, and it has three participles. And I think those three participles are descriptions on how we are to keep ourselves in the love of God. Think of them kind of like a three-legged stool. You know, if you lose any leg of a three-legged stool, what happens? Well, it collapses, and it doesn't work anymore. We need all three legs to have a robust theology, a robust Christian walk on what it means to keep ourselves in the love of God. So what's the first thing that Jude writes? Well, he tells us to build oneself up in the faith. 
So before we begin to really analyze what this means, we need to ask ourselves, what in the world does Jude mean by faith? Well, in this particular context, he's meaning, and we've got to go back to verse 3, where he talks about the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So in other words, what he's talking about is that the content of our faith, like the, doc, the set of doctrines that Christians believe, the teachings of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Not so much the, much the act of trusting, but the content, the teaching, the doctrine. So what is it that we are to build ourselves on? He's like, well, you need to build yourselves on your most holy faith. Well, building is a familiar metaphor in the New Testament, and Paul would write this in Ephesians 2.20. He writes this, built, he's speaking of the church, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So he's saying, hey, this is the foundation of the, that you need to be building on is of the apostles and the prophets. In other words, it's the word of God and the gospel. So Judah then is saying, if you are to remain in God's love, one must build on one's learning, one's understanding, and grow in one's Christian faith. So there's a direct correlation between your knowledge of, of the Bible, the knowledge of the Christian faith, and your maturity in Christ. So the more I grow in knowing God, the more I will grow in my understanding of God's love for me, and I will continue to grow as a Christian. You know, think about marriage or even a friendship works in this way. How does one grow in one's marriage relationship? Well, we begin to understand and to learn more and know our spouses a little bit better. So the more that I get to know Julie, the more I know what pleases her, and the greater marriage we will have. If I grow lax in trying to understand my wife and trying to please my wife, my love will also grow lax. I will begin to get lazy on how I go about that relationship. Or maybe, considering it's a new year, think about one of the common ones, I want to lose weight, or I want to diet of, in some form or fashion. Well, one of the truths of eating or dieting is you become whatever it is that you eat. You know, if I have a diet of food, pop, and pizza, my body will begin to look like that's what I'm eating. Yet if I eat fruits, vegetables, and lean protein, I'm beginning, I will, my body will demonstrate that difference. Well, it's the same principle that applies spiritually. What is it that we are feeding our bodies? Are we feasting, are we feeding on the Word of God, or are we eating spiritual junk food? Well, if you're here this morning, maybe, maybe you are wrestling and struggling and doubt that God really does love you. Could it be that you neglected His Word? Psalmist writes this in Psalm 119.28. says this, My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. So the psalmist here is like, look, my, my soul is melting. It is pulling away. And what do I need to be strengthened? Well, I need the word. I need to hear from, from God. And Peter writes this in 1 Peter 2, 2-3. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So like an infant craves spiritual craves milk, we are to crave the Word of God if we are to remain in God's love. Um, so there are several ways that you could apply this to yourselves this morning. One of the things that we encourage you to, you to do as a congregation every year is to pick up a Bible in the Year program. Uh, we have those on the information table. Just pick one up and read it and, and go through that for this particular year. The second thing I would mention is to Read some deep Christian books related to Christian theology. 
Now, if you go to a Christian bookstore, they will, they will tell you that the greatest seller in their bookstore is Christian living. That's like the biggest area of sales. Honestly, when I, I read and I, and I see a lot of those books, a lot of them are Christianity light. It's not that they're bad. It's just that they are not really challenging and helping us really understand more about our faith. I would encourage you to get something that will challenge you to actually think a little bit more, to understand Christ on a deeper level. Grab something like J.I. Packer's Knowing God. Or if you're up for a bigger challenge, grab yourself a systematic theology by like Wayne Grudem or Michael Horton. Challenge yourself to grow in your understanding of the Christian faith. I think, think about it this way. It's instead of like going for the, you know, the spiritual fast food that Christian living often is, go for the steak dinner of like the systematic theology or the Christian faith. They're trying to understand things on a deeper level. Um, the third way that we can apply this, this text for ourselves this morning is to focus on continuing to, to hear the corporate teaching and, and uh, preaching of the word. You know, it's easy to come one Sunday, but to make this a habit, to keep coming, is a great thing. That is another way that you can help yourselves grow. You know, one of the things I, I read this week when I was thinking about this commitment to, to grow in the Word, to grow in my understanding of the Christian faith, is I read somewhere that if Americans spent the equal amount of time that they were watching television, reading their Bibles, they'd read through their whole Bible in about three to four weeks. Now, we have a, a, some of us have a hard time getting through the Bible in a year, but if, when you think about, man, yeah, if I watch two to three hours of television, a day. If I spent that in the Word, man, you could get through the Bible really quickly. So this New Year's, I would challenge you to make some resolutions to decide to grow in your faith, to grow in your understanding. Figure out what it is that God would have you do to, to grow up in your understanding of the Christian faith. So the first thing that Jude would have us understand to keep ourselves in love of God is to build ourselves up in the Word. The second one, I bet you can almost guess what he's going to say next, is it's to pray in the Holy Spirit. So that's the second one, is prayer. So praying in the Holy Spirit is the second of Jude's participles of what it means to keep ourselves in the love of God. So what in the world does it mean to pray in the Holy Spirit? That's kind of a strange way to say it, right? Some suppose that he meant that it means to speak in tongues, but I don't think that that's what he meant. I think what he's thinking about is the nature of Christian prayer. See, Christian prayer is Trinitarian. All members of the Trinity are involved. And Paul would write this in Galatians 4, 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So leave that verse up for a second. I want you to notice how all three members of the Trinity show up in how Paul's describing prayer. So God, the Father, sends the Spirit of His Son, Jesus Christ, into our hearts so that we can cry, Abba, Father. So we can pray because the Trinity is working while we are in prayer. So elsewhere, Romans 8, Paul would write this, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes with the saints according to the will of God. So Paul is trying to help the Romans, this particular church, understand the privilege of prayer. 
One of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to enable us, to empower us, embolden us to pray. Why can you and I pray? It's because the Holy Spirit is equipping us, is giving us the power and the ability to pray. It w- prayer would be impossible without the Holy Spirit. And it's a great privilege to, aggress- to be able to address God in prayer. It's, it's sometimes a privilege we take too easily for granted. But in the Holy Spirit, we can approach God in prayer without having to go through a human representative. And you think about history in the Old Testament and in Roman Catholicism. If I was to, to go to, to God, I couldn't go to him directly. I had to go through a priest. But now, because of the new covenant enacted by Christ, we have direct access to God. We can approach God in prayer. And that's an amazing thing that we have that ability to do that. We are told by the author of Hebrews, Hebrews 4, 14-16, we are told this. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So we have the Holy Spirit who is enabling us to cry to God as our Father. And here in Hebrews, we have Jesus, our great high priest, interceding for us on our behalf. So right there, we have two members of the Trinity involved. We have the Holy Spirit, God the Son, Jesus Christ, interceding for us as our high priest. So what about God the Father? How is he involved in our prayers? Jesus says this in Matthew 7, 7 through 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which, of, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So here Jesus is teaching us we have a willing and adopted father who loves to hear requests, loves to hear prayers from his children, and he's just waiting to be asked. So in the Trinity, they're all involved as we pray. Their role may be different, but we can thank God that the triune Godhead is is involved as we do that. So prayer then is both simple and mysterious, right? It's simple because it's we can do it anywhere, but it's also mysterious. It's mind-blowing, and, and to me it's awesome, that the King of kings and Lord of lords, the creator of the universe, would want to hear something that I would say. Who am I that you would want to hear a prayer from me? But not only does God hear it, but he moves and he acts on behalf of the prayers of his children. And I think we need to be reminded of that of that this morning, that nothing happens in our lives, in the church, without the power of God in prayer. God is often waiting to be asked to move, but we busy ourselves in activity rather than seeking the Lord in prayer. Martin Luther one time was commenting about his day. He had a lot of things going on, and he made this comment. He's like, I got so much to do today, I have to spend three hours in prayer. I mean, is that our attitude, our default, like, man, I got so much to do, I need to spend more time in prayer. And Puritan pastor, Robert Murray McShane, he once declared this, what a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. So if we were to gauge our, our spiritual lives by our prayer life, what is it that it would say about us? 
Now, there's a legend also surrounding the ministry of Charles Spurgeon or C.H. Spurgeon. Spurgeon was asked about, why is your ministry by a young man, young pastor, why is your ministry so successful? Well, Spurgeon ushers this man to the basement of his church where there is a bunch of people huddled in prayer for the service going on above it. So his secret was a praying church. But I think a life that really demonstrates the power of prayer, to me anyway, is a man by the name of George Mueller. George Mueller once set it out in his heart to demonstrate that God is faithful and that he answers prayer. Mueller started a whole series of orphanages in London, and he was a missionary from Germany. And he did this during the 1800s. And he wrote, starting the orphanages, why he was doing it. He wrote this, The three chief reasons for establishing an orphan house are, first reason, that God may be glorified, should be pleased to furnish me with the means, and it's being seen that it is not a vain thing to trust in him, and that thus the faith of his children may be strengthened. In other words, it needs to be to the glory of God, that God in providing for these orphans is going to glorify himself. The second reason is this, the spiritual welfare of the fatherless and the motherless children and third, their temporal welfare. And I think those, or, that's the order, the priorities in his, in his heart. Is he wanted God to be glorified first, the, the orphans to become Christians, and third, he wanted to provide for them physically. And Mueller went about this in an unorthodox fashion. Instead of going around and asking people for donate, donations, he would pray for things. And things would just happen. And he did this because he wanted to demonstrate for Christians everywhere that God is faithful and hears prayers still. That's what he would write. And he, overall, in his lifetime, he established five orphanages, cared for over 10,000 orphans, and never went into debt. And how did he do that? He simply trusted God and trusted that God would hear his prayers. So Christian, do you pray? Do, do, do I pray? Do we pray as we, we ought? Not going through the motions of prayer, not saying, well, you know, I could check it off my, my, ta- my, my you know, checklist for the day, but really devoting and giving myself to the to work of prayer. And Judah's saying, look, if you're going to remain, if you're going to keep yourselves in the love of God, you need to give yourself to the work of prayer and the Holy Spirit. I don't know what that looks like for you. It may mean uh, journaling your prayers. It may mean setting alarms on your phone throughout the day so that you make it a priority throughout your day to pray, pray to God. It may mean praying out loud. I don't know what it is that, that you, would, you would need to do, but whatever it is that you need to do, do it so that you would give yourself to the work of prayer. So thus far, in Jude 20 through 21, we've seen that, that God, in order to keep ourselves in God's love, we are to give ourselves to understanding and learning the Word of God in the Christian faith. We're to give ourselves to prayer, but he also gives us a third thing that we are to do, and it's to wait for the Lord Jesus. Look, look what he writes in verse 21. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So the, if the first part is about our minds, our understanding, the second part is about our, our hearts in, in prayer, well, the third part is about our gaze. Where's your eyes? Where are your eyes focused? Are they focused on this world? Are they focused on world to come? And it's interesting that of all the things you could have wrote that we're waiting for, it's for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. We were just singing about the, the great and awesome mercy of God. 
And so Jude is saying, look, we need to be waiting for the mercy of Jesus when he returns in his glory. And for the Christians, when Jesus returns, we know that it will be an act of mercy. And so we long for him to come back so that we can receive his mercy. So the, so the Christian's hope, the Christian's gaze, is not on this world, trying to get as much out of it as we can now, but rather on the world to come. This is why Peter writes, 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So the Christian in this life is called a sojourner or an exile, one who is just passing through, never quite making the earth his home, but looking forward to the eternal home that we will have in heaven. You may have heard this phrase at some point in your life, that this person, this particular individual, was so heavenly-minded he was no earthly good. Right? He was so concerned with heaven that he was no earthly good in the here and now. The idea is that this particular saint or this particular person is so focused, so honed in on heaven that they can't do a lot of good on the earth now. Well, C.S. Lewis was thinking about this particular comment, and he said this quote is actually mistaken. It's precisely the Christian who is concerned about heaven, who is earthly good. A Christian who is thinking about the life to come will make certain commitments, certain decisions, a certain lifestyle, so that, and he will actually be earthly good. It is precisely because Jesus is coming back that I will live a certain way. I will want to be, fa- be found by Christ by living a holy life, for example. So that, that impending, that imminent promise of heaven better equips us to live life in the present. I believe Jude is telling these Christians then to think and hope upon Christ and not this world. One danger of any age, and I think of particular for Americans, is worldliness. Worldliness is loving the world and trying to get as much out of this world as you can. John writes in 1 John 2, 15-17, he writes this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. See, John is saying, look, loving and being so involved and engaged in this world is foolish and disastrous for believers. He goes as far to say that the love of the Father is not in him. If the Christian, if that particular person going around calling himself is a Christian, but loves this world more than he loves Christ. So the American dream then, this idea that we need to get everything that we can in the here and now, can be deadly for our soul. Do you live your life for comfort, to get as much comfort and security that you can in your life? Do you live to get everything that you can now? For the white picket fence, the four-bedroom home on the 10-acre lot with dogs and horses and everything, is that, is that your dream, success in, in, your, in your particular vocation? What is it that you might be substituting rather than waiting for Christ? What is it that you're trying to get out of this world? And John and Jude are both warning us against the danger of loving the world and the things in the world. You know, when Julie and I were, were first dating, we had uh, what, what was called a long-distance relationship. Uh, I was going to college in Dayton, Tennessee. Julie was going to college in Toccoa Falls, Georgia. You can look that up on a map if you want to know where that is. But anyhow, there was about three and a half, four hours between us. So we didn't really see each other except on 
rare occasions. Now, sure, was it nice to have phone calls, exchange letters, and do those sorts of things? Yeah, that was nice. But really what we were longing for was to be together, to be together face-to-face, to be alongside each other. And in a similar manner, that's what a Christian longs for, that time where we get to see Christ face-to-face. John writes in 1 John 3, 2, says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. So the Christian hope, then, is a waiting and expectant hope. We make sacrifices, and we can give up things in this world because of the world yet to come, for the greater prize of heaven. Jim Elliot was a uh, was a missionary martyr in the, Am- in the Amazon. Uh, he was killed trying to share the gospel with this particular tribe in the Amazon. And he once wrote this in his journal. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. So are you waiting for Christ and for his return? Or, or are you so wrapped up in this world that you would rather Jesus kind of delay his coming because there's more things you want to get out of this life now? So Jesus' return, then, is a, is a reminder for us as Christians, look, look, this is not our home. We need to be waiting and longing for heaven. And Jesus' return is also a call for people everywhere to repent and believe while there's still time. Paul once preached to the Athenians in Acts 17.30, says this, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. And so are you here this morning expecting life to go on as it always has? Paul is warning, and Paul's warning to the Athenians is, look, there's going to be a day in the future where Jesus is going to come, and he was going to come in judgment. And he's going to return in judgment on those who have not yet repented of their sins and trusted in him. It'll be mercy for those who have done that, who have trusted in Christ, but judgment for those who have have not. And he is returning. We do not know when. It could be now. It could be 10 minutes from now. It could be 10 years or 100 years from now. We do not know when he would return. But do not procrastinate. Do not keep, well, I'll get around to that Christian business or get around to thinking about spiritual things when it's a secure time. You do not know when Christ will return. It could be today. If, you're, if you stake all your hope and all your joy in this world, you will be disappointed in the end. And if you place your hope and your joy in the world to come, you will find life now and forevermore. Oh, that my hope would be that all of us would be waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. So then for the Christian, to keep ourselves in the love of God, it means that we need to devote ourselves to the understanding, to growing and learning about our Christian faith. It means that, that, that our mind is engaged. But we also need to devote ourselves to prayer, to give ourselves to the work of prayer, not just give it lip service. And the third thing that that we need to be doing as believers to keep ourselves in the love of God is to be waiting, to be longing for for Christ. Yet it's not all all the full picture, because if it's left to me, if it's left to me and my ability to do those three things, I would be in a very bad spot. 
because at times I'm going to fail. I'm not going to do this perfectly all the time. But I think that's why Jude bookends his book the way he does. Look, look at verse 1. He writes, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So he says that in verse 1. Now go down to verse 24, and he writes this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So Jude, at the beginning and at the end of his letter, is reminding believers, look, it's not entirely left up to you. God is keeping you. God is empowering you. God is equipping you to to keep yourselves in the love of God. So God will not give you up. He's going to keep working in you. But I think sometimes we can, we can take uh, that assurance, and I am glad that we have that assurance, and sometimes use it as an excuse to be lazy. Well, if God's keeping me, I don't really have to put forth any effort. Well, no, that's precisely the reason that we do put forth effort, is because He is keeping me. No matter my performance, God is going to keep me. So how will you labor this year in growing in your holiness, Christian? What effort are you going to exert to keep yourself in the faith? And for the non-Christian or for someone here this morning who is living entirely for the here and now, Jesus is coming back. And my prayer, my hope for you is that you would repent while there is still time. And when Jesus returns, it will be a time of judgment for you if you have not yet repented and trusted in him alone. Don't tarry or wait or procrastinate. What better time than the new year to trust in Christ alone for salvation? Well, as we uh, get ready for the Lord's Supper, um, thinking through this particular message. Really, when we take the Lord's Supper, it's a reminder that Christ has not yet come yet. Remember, he tells us to do this in remembrance of him. And so, when we are taking this Lord's Supper, it's a reminder that we are waiting, we are hoping, and we are expecting him to return. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, I do thank you for your word for the challenge to us to give ourselves to greater understanding of our faith. God, I do pray that you would help us to know and to grow in what it means to, to understand uh, what it means to be a follower of Christ. And God, I do pray that you'd, you'd help us, you'd equip us to give ourselves to the work of prayer. And God, I pray that our gaze would be focused on heaven, be focused on your return. And God, I do pray for those who are here this morning who maybe have not yet trusted in you yet. Jesus, I do pray that you would awaken their conscience, that you would awaken them to their need to repent while there is still time. Lord, as we come to your supper, I pray that you would help us as we reflect upon how it is that we are waiting for you. In your name we pray. Amen.